This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. On today's show, we're going to try and get by with a little help from our friends. Some people are slated to call in or pop by, and let's, uh, let's hope they do. There's so many things going on in the world that sometimes we just don't know where to begin on this program. So many things we could talk about. We trust that the show will evolve, as it often does, by going through one pile of clippings after the other. And we shall start today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 15th of March. It was on March 15th in the year 222 B.C. in Rome... When March 15th was declared the date with which new councils would assume their duties, because years were designated by the consul's name, March 15th also marked the beginning of each new year. That was at least up until 153 B.C., when the date was shifted to January. And on this same date in 44 B.C., Gaius Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome, was stabbed to death in the Roman Senate by 60 conspirators, led by Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius Longinus. And I guess somehow March 15th marked the Ides of March, but I'm not sure how you calculate the Ides of March or the Ides of any other month. I understand it varies. If you know the answer to this puzzle, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. On this date in 1812, Russian settlers established their first California settlement at the mouth of the Russian River. March 15th in 1907, Finland granted women the right to vote. It was the first European nation to do so. And on March 15th in 1989, General Secretary of the Communist Party, Mikhail Gorbachev, called for an end to the Soviet agricultural bureaucracy and the introduction of free market principles. His dramatic speech indicated that the Soviet Union was suffering serious economic troubles, which would eventually lead to its collapse in December of 1991. I didn't have a chance to see Mikhail Gorbachev speak in Sacramento a few years back. He was very interesting. Unfortunately, he was, uh, quote, interviewed, unquote, by Clear Channel knucklehead Michael Reagan, who apparently is allowed to speak into a microphone because his last name is Reagan. That's just a guess, but it's certainly not because he demonstrates any discernible talent. Our quote of the day comes from Bertrand Russell, who once said, War never determines who's right, just who's left. Our quote of the day comes from Craig Ferguson, who said, I'm excited about the new iPad, but then I'm excited about anything that is not the Republican primaries. Our quip slash joke that it comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, It's being reported that Dunkin' Donuts in China is adding pork donuts to the menu. For God's sake, said Conan, do the Chinese have to beat us at everything? And our bonus quip also comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, According to exit polls, Mitt Romney is struggling with voters who call themselves very conservative. However, Mitt's doing great with voters who describe themselves as being totally freaked out by Rick Santorum. Our stat of the day... According to TheAtlantic.com, two researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have calculated that if every American were to actually read the privacy policies governing every website he or she visits in a year, the best estimate is about 1,460 sites, it would take 76 full-time working days to read them. 
The median privacy policy they found is 2,500 words long. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for the right-wing nuts who have taken over the Republican Party. With the news that in Lawrence County, South Carolina, anyway, Republican candidates must henceforth sign a pledge that they did not or will not have sex before marriage, are not gay, and will not watch pornography. This pledge, approved unanimously by the GOP Executive Committee, contains 24 other moral requirements that Chairman Bobby Smith says are essential to try and protect the party's reputation. Well, if you want to shore up your reputation, what better way than through a purity pledge, wouldn't you say? It was, on the other hand, a bad week for international feminism last week with the news that Saudi Arabia has refused to send a woman's team to the Olympic Games in London this summer. The conservative Islamic nation considers women who exercise in public quote, shameless, unquote. In 2009, the government shut down 153 women's gyms. This is the same nation we had to protect in the first Gulf War from Saddam Hussein. Oh, and by the way, this appears to be the same nation which apparently bankrolled the 9-11 hijackers, 15 of the 19 of which were Saudi Arabian. Of course, I guess we can note with some approval that none were women. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for... American culture, with the news that Jersey Shore star Nicole Snooki Polizzi is pregnant and engaged. Reportedly, MTV executives are in crisis mode over how the pregnancy will affect a spinoff of Jersey Shore currently being filmed. According to People.com, they're trying to hide the pregnancy because it would greatly affect the creative direction of the show, according to one insider. And yes, we're as surprised as you are that... <laughs> This show actually had a creative direction. Who knew? Mr. McMillan has asked me what the show is about, and and damned if I can tell him. I watched a few minutes of it unfold in horror on numerous occasions, but boy, damned if I can put a finger on it. Dear listener, if you have any concept of what the point of Jersey Shore is, please drop us a line at info at We'll read the best entry on the air. I got a feeling we'll read any entry on the air. Because it is my firm hope, dear listener, that none of you actually watch Jersey Shore. All right, let's jump into a a roundup of some miscellaneous items laying around, like the Russian election. In the wake of Vladimir Putin being declared the winner with nearly 65% of the vote, 20,000 protesters marched in below zero temperatures in Moscow to accuse Putin of stealing the election. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which monitors elections, said the vote was neither free nor fair. Said OSCE's Tonio Picula, the point of elections is that the outcome should be uncertain. This was not the case in Russia. Well, we have to admit, elections where the outcome is certain beforehand are discouraging. 
And although we have no evidence at Radio Parallax that the outcome was swung by Putin's brother, Jeb Putin, the people in Russia were a bit dismayed. According to Alexander Minkin in the Moskovsky Komsomolets, Putin was pronounced the winner with an implausible 65% of the vote. It was noted that a good chunk of those votes came from rampant, what were called carousel voting, in which busloads of voters go from polling place to polling place casting ballots under different names. Confronted by monitors, bus passengers, quote, behave like thieves caught in the act, hiding their faces, refusing to speak. And it was noted that only outright ballot stuffing could possibly explain the preposterous results from Chechnya. Putin is hated there as the author of Years of Bloody War, yet he somehow managed to get more votes than there were registered voters. You know, we'll say one thing from the Republican Party. You know, when they steal an election, they won't stoop to actually producing more votes than there are registered voters. Well, at least except in the case of an occasional precinct here and there. All right, in the wake of the phony baloney threat of Iran to close off the uh, Straits of Hormuz, we now have this one. China is upping its military spending by 11% this year and will pass the $100 billion mark for the first time. Keep in mind that this is a fraction of the amount we spend in Afghanistan alone, which is what, in our now 11th year? It was noted that the U.S. military budget is at least seven times that of China. And from the world of science, we have this irresistible item. We all know that back in the Jurassic era, dinosaurs were pretty large creatures. Well, apparently the fleas on them were equally large. New fossils found in China are evidence that the oldest fleas from 125 to 165 million years ago were at least eight times bigger than today's fleas. They're about the size of a quarter. What they don't tell you is that back then the flea collars were the size of hot tubs. But uh, let's take a little trip into the world of commerce, shall we? We had Andreas Kluth from The Economist magazine on a few weeks back with his excellent book on Hannibal. Hannibal and Me, it was titled. If you didn't uh, hear that, we recommend you check it out in our archives. But we have a weak spot for The Economist because of just how damn well they write. In a piece uh, from last uh, February's 18th issue on uh, corporate fraud and how linguistic software might help companies catch crooks, which is a scary concept, but, uh, but the article opens up as follows. In the film Superman 3, a lowly computer programmer played by Richard Pryor, embezzles a fat wad of money from his employer. The boss laments that it will be hard to catch the thief because he won't do a thing to call attention to himself unless, of course, he's a complete and utter moron. Just then, Mr. Pryor screeches into the car park in a brand new red sports car, radio blaring. Notes the magazine, in the real world, embezzlers are seldom so obvious. Actually, it's a pretty scary article about how anti-fraud software is going to scan your emails for evidence of money troubles. And yes, it'll be looking for phrases like under the gun and make sales quota. It'll be looking for your incentive. It'll be looking for your opportunity to steal. The software will check out uh, what Snoop's call out-of-band events, messages such as call my mobile or come by my office, suggesting a desire to talk without being overheard. Hmm. Here's some news that should warm our hearts from Fortune magazine. According to Dan Primack, writing in that magazine, when Pfizer announced this year it was slashing spending on research and development, its shares rose more than 
When rival Merck said it was keeping its R&D spending level, its shares fell 3%. The message seems clear enough. Stop spending so much money to create new drugs. Investors apparently believe it's cheaper for pharmaceutical giants to get promising new medications by buying startups. Though Mr. Primack, if Big Pharma continues to slash R&D budgets, will face a looming imbalance as the demand for new drugs far outstrips supply. Big Pharma needs to spend whatever it takes to improve Americans' health instead of succumbing to Wall Street's worst instincts. And speaking of Wall Street's worst instincts, uh, they've apparently been shaken up over there in uh, downtown Manhattan with the news that Greg Smith, an executive director at Goldman Sachs, resigned with a blistering editorial that accused the bank of losing its, quote, moral fiber, unquote, putting profits ahead of customers' interests and dismissing customers as Muppets. The stinging editorial, Why I'm Leaving Goldman Sachs, appeared in the New York Times and apparently was the talk of Wall Street. Smith was identified by the Times as head of the company's United States equity derivatives business in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. He wrote that he attended sales meetings in which helping clients make money was not part of the discussion. He wrote, if you were an alien from Mars and sat in on one of these meetings, you'd believe that a client's success or progress was not part of the thought process at all. Smith wrote that Goldman had devolved from a company he was proud to work for when he joined. He said the bank needs to weed out the morally bankrupt people and suggested that the erosion of Goldman's culture threatened its future. He also wrote that there are easy paths to becoming a leader at Goldman, including persuading clients to invest in products the company wants to get rid of or will bring the most profit to Goldman. Another way, he said, is to find yourself sitting in a seat where your job is to trade any illiquid, opaque product with a three-letter acronym. There's one of the pieces I read on this that said that Goldman is also known for churning out leaders who run the world. Henry Paulson, who was Treasury Secretary when the government devised its $700 billion rescue of the banks in 2008, is a former CEO. So is John Corzine, the former New Jersey governor who was at the helm of the brokerage MF Global when it collapsed. Noted that the Smith editorial comes as outrage against Wall Street excesses has bubbled up in popular culture, most notably through the Occupy Wall Street protest movement and the presidential campaign. We'll have more to say about Occupy Wall Street a little bit later in today's show. Commenting on this, Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone, a vocal critic of Goldman, said, real change was always going to have to come from within Wall Street. And the best way is for investors to see that the gold ones of the world aren't just arrogant sleazebags, but they're also not terribly good at managing your money. And you may have noticed that uh, in the Sunday editions of the Sacramento Bee, they will reprint pieces from the Wall Street Journal, a publication whose editorial pages we have uh, poked fun at repeatedly over the years. But here's a piece from the editorial pages that... uh, Got our attention, shall we say. Piece by Al Lewis titled, Psychos on Wall Street. Noted Mr. Lewis, the easiest way to explain the never-ending string of Wall Street scandals and implosions is to observe that a surprising percentage of people in the financial industry are psychos. The latest edition of CFA Magazine, a trade publication for chartered financial analysts, features an article claiming one out of ten people working on Wall Street are psychopaths. Noted that Sherry Duchovny, the former investment broker who wrote the piece, says the estimate comes from researchers, including a psychologist who treats Wall Street professionals. 
In the 2005 book, The Sociopath Next Door, Harvard University psychologist Martha Stout claimed that one out of every 25 people in America is a sociopath. She defined sociopath as a person with no conscience. Noted Mr. Lewis, I have come to know many psychopaths, from Ponzi schemers to book-cooking corporate executives. They are always charming and narcissistic. They display wonderfully glib senses of humor and spin the truth like a roulette wheel. He wrote, I only know one man who openly admits he's a psychopath. I called him to see what he thought of the numbers Ms. DeCovney reported. Said Sam Antar, first of all, it's not one out of ten. It's probably eight out of ten. Mr. Antar was the chief financial officer of Crazy Eddie, an electronics retailer in the New York area that became one of the more infamous stock fraud cases of the late 1980s. Mr. Antar pled guilty to felonies, but received no jail time for assisting prosecutors in charges against his cousin, Eddie Antar, who famously advertised that his prices were just insane, frequently parodied on Saturday Night Live by Dan Aykroyd. Said Mr. Antar, the reality is, to succeed on Wall Street, you've got to be a psychopath in one form or another. I have to admit, I, I just, I'm amazed by this piece. Said Al Lewis, Mr. Antar now teaches law enforcement organizations how to spot psychos. He thinks of himself as a psychopath in remission, but admits he could snap back at any time, much like a relapsing alcoholic. Of course, he admitted, the only reason I started calling myself a psychopath is because it got me a complete walk from the feds. The piece concludes by noting that Ms. Duchovny suggests financial firms screen for psychopathic traits when they're interviewing prospective employees and regularly monitor antisocial behaviors amid their ranks. Okay, then who'd be left to run Wall Street? She asked, don't we need to learn from the financial crisis? Said Mr. Lewis, we do. And we won't. In an equally fascinating piece from the current edition of The Economist, we have a, a review of a book titled Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty. The authors posit that nations fail because their leaders are greedy, selfish, and ignorant of history. They note that amid weak and accommodating institutions, there's little to discourage a leader from looting. Noting such environments channel society's output towards a parasitic elite, discouraging investment, and innovation. They note that extractive institutions are the historical norm. Note of the piece, inclusive institutions, conversely, protect individual rights and encourage investment and effort. Where inclusive governments emerge, great wealth follows. Note of the Economist, Britain, the wellspring of the Industrial Revolution, is the chief proof of their theory. Small medieval differences in the absolutism of English and Spanish monarchs were amplified by historical chance. When European exploration began, Britain's more constrained crown left trade in the hands of privateers, whereas Spain favored state control of ocean commerce. The New World's riches solidified Spanish tyranny, but nurtured a merchant elite in Britain. In Central and South America, European explorers found dense populations ripe for plundering. They built suitably exploitative states. Britain's North American colonies, by contrast, made poor ground for extractive institutions. The indigenous populations were too dispersed to enslave. They note where pluralism took root, American industry and wealth boomed. 
where it lapsed, like in southern slaveholding colonies, a long period of economic backwardness resulted. Interesting stuff. Close by noting that that particular book is skeptical of the Chinese model. They note that China's growth may be rooted in the removal of highly oppressive Maoist institutions, but its communist government remains fundamentally extractive. It notes that it may engineer growth by mobilizing people, but without political reform and the possibility of creative destruction, growth will eventually grind to a halt. We shall see. Let's close this segment with a little lighter item, which also comes um, from the world of commerce. In this case, from the 22nd edition of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. In this case, on food origins. They note that if you ordered a cafe latte in Italy, you'd get a cup of coffee with some milk in it. In Italian, it literally means coffee with milk. You wouldn't get espresso combined with steamed milk. That's an American latte, which is a variation on cappuccino that was created in 1959 in Berkeley, California. The owner of the Cafe Mediterranean, named Lino Mayorin, came up with the drink when customers who were unfamiliar with Italian coffee drinks ordered a cappuccino and, disliking the strong taste, asked for extra milk. Mayorin served his first lattes in bowls and pint glasses. I'll never think of a latte the same way. Oh, and one more from the Bathroom Reader series. They had a chapter on the Society for the Coalition of Organizations and Associations, which listed some curious groups such as the Society for Barefoot Living, the National Coalition for Men, the Society for Creative Anachronism, and our favorite, the National Coalition for the Advancement of Baton Twirling. Apparently, the NCABT notes that not only is baton twirling a sport, but it's a difficult one to master, and therefore should get the respect it deserves. They are, as we speak, lobbying the NCAA to make it an officially sanctioned college sport. And apparently, a related organization, the U.S. Twirling Association, is working tirelessly to make baton twirling an Olympic event. Just so happens, Mr. Marillon and I know a distinguished baton twirler, and we will hope to bring her on the program to speak further about the efforts to advance her sport. And on that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Lock me a lady tonight. Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Please be a lady tonight